Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Greater Good, a series of conversations on policy priorities that matter for our future with leaders across government, business and academia. I'm Melinda Salento, Chief Executive of CETA, the Committee for Economic Development of Australia. Before we get started, I'd like you to take a few seconds to rate and subscribe to our podcast. This means that you get new episodes to your phone as soon as they go live, and rating our show helps others to find it too. So thank you in advance. Now to today's show, the first in a series of conversations on superannuation. The federal government has released its long-awaited retirement income review by former Treasury official Mike Callaghan. While it found Australia's retirement income system was effective and sound, it questioned the role of super tax concessions for wealthier Australians and the legislated increase to the compulsory superannuation rate. It comes two months after the government announced a raft of changes to super in the federal budget, including that new accounts will no longer be automatically created every time someone starts a new job. There's a lot happening in this space, so let's get into it. Today, I'm joined by Sally Lone, Chief Executive of the Financial Services Council, which represents retail super funds. We'll get the views of industry funds in the next podcast. Welcome, Sally Lone, Chief Executive of the Financial Services Council. How are you? Very well, thanks, Melinda. Um, Sally, why don't we start off just giving the audience a quick rundown on the Financial Services Council, who you are, who you represent, and then we'll kind of try to draw the thread to superannuation, if that's all right. Yes, of course. Um, We're an industry organisation representing a big chunk of financial services in Australia, and financial services, of course, is one of the biggest sort of sectors in the Australian economy, uh, thanks to the great success of superannuation. Um, We represent life insurers. We represent advice licensee firms. Uh, We represent retail superannuation funds, which are about a third of the three sort of big super funds uh, organisations in Australia, and uh, we represent fund managers, so a big diverse chunk of loosely the, the, the wealth sector of Australia. So certainly uh, plenty of interest in superannuation, but let me let me ask you this, Sally, can you remind me how long have you been at the FSC? This is my sixth year at the FSC. So your timing was right just to get you straight into something of a baptism of fire. It's been a busy six years on all things financial things financial services. Yes, it's been massive. I came in when life insurance was going through a deep examination through the Trowbridge Review, and uh, we're still dealing with a lot of the legislation out of that review um, with life insurance. So, yeah, it's been full on. We had the Royal Commission, of course, into superannuation and and banking, uh, and we've had uh, just an enormous pipeline of regulation legislation for financial services ever since. Um, We've had a great deal of... um, you know, empowerment of the regulators, APRA and ASIC, to look uh, to focus more on financial services. So yes, it's uh, there's been absolutely no rest. I can tell you. No, it's been uh, I mean really an amazing time, and as you said, you know, a wall of of new regulation. I think you know lots of shifting um, expectations. And, you know, this year, I think, you know, the importance of superannuation has played out in different ways, hasn't it, with with COVID and people Mm. being allowed, you know, early access um, to uh, superannuation funds as a means of supporting themselves through 
the financial challenges of COVID. Like it's, it, you know, it's one new lens, I guess, into in, into superannuation and its importance uh, to us. Um, yeah, that's been actually quite massive. Um, it all happened very quickly uh, when COVID was breaking over us, and I don't think anybody had any idea that we would come out, I guess, as well as we have. But for people who were losing their jobs immediately, and I think of that visual of all of those people lining up in front of Centrelink offices, that was just so frightening. So we actually backed uh, the government's um, initiative to, to allow people to have early release of super. There's always been provisions for early release of super if you really fall into the hardship category and you might need your super for something like, you know, a, a life-threatening illness or something like that. But this did open the seal a little bit more and allowed people to take tranches of $10,000 at a time. Now, a lot of people did that. Um, the take-up has been now, I think, north of $45 billion. Um, millions of Australians have accessed it. And most people, according to the evidence that we've seen, have used it really to live on, to, um, to pay bills, to actually just um, get the, keep them going through, through COVID. Um, it ends all on uh, the end of this year. Um, and that big tranche of people who are accessing their super has really now sort of decreased to a trickle. Very few, very few left. So let's talk a little bit more about the sort of structural side of, of superannuation, if we can. And uh, I, I think we can start by sort of having a look at and trying to sort of unpack the Callaghan Review, mm -hmm. um, which, of course, came out of a recommendation from the Productivity Commission uh, it's the latest in a series of reports into the into the sector, and uh, it does feel a little bit like superannuation is is always up for reform, if you like, and there's a lot of conversation. It, it doesn't feel a bit exhausting to you. <laughs> yeah, well, super's been examined, I think, uphill and down dale in a. 30 years. It's 30 years since we've had compulsory superannuation. We've had superannuation, of course, forever. Um, but now it's very much a part of our sort of three pillars of our retirement system. Private savings, of course, we've always had that. We've always had private super. Um, we've got the age pension, of course, which will go on, I think, probably forever. And we've got superannuation. And I think one of the, the, the key things now that that has, I guess, made people wake up and look at super is just the size of it. You know, that magic of compounding interest, it's, it's very close to being $3 trillion um, of funds under management in a very small country like Australia. We've actually got the fourth biggest pension system in the world behind the UK, the US and uh, Canada and Japan. Fourth or fifth we are. So it's absolutely enormous when you think about the size of our country. We've only got, what, 11.5 million workers. So it's substantial. It does mean that every time something is tweaked uh, to super, the whole of financial services sort of um, takes notice because it, it is such a big part now of our economy. Um, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so I think that's right, and I think it, it's one of those great policy challenges, if you like, because um, it, in, you know, superannuation, compulsory superannuation, touches so many people, and you know, and it's been around, as you say, for a while now. So it, you know it. Any change ripples through the system pretty pretty significantly. So let's let's go to Callahan. What what did you make of, of the of the review and and the findings from the review? It was policy wonk heaven uh, reading through the 650 pages. I must say I didn't do that myself, but my policy wonks did. Um, I read quite a bit of it. Um, 
It's a really interesting document. It doesn't make any policy recommendations, but the goal was to create an evidence base which will inform the policy debate uh, on our current retirement income system. So it wasn't just about super. It looked at the whole, all of those three pillars, as I said, private savings, the age pension and super. The one that they sort of left out, which I guess is going into another area, is aged care. And that is a whole interesting other area of people, particularly baby boomers now finding, you know, they're putting their parents into aged care and um, all the uh, financial you know, levers that have to be pulled there. But the Callaghan Review essentially found that our system is delivering pretty good outcomes. Um, it's effective, it's sound, it's sustainable. So if you take a building analogy, the system doesn't require a whole demolish and rebuild, but it is an old structure that's suffered from lots and lots of add-ons of differing quality, I guess. Um, and every government has tweaked super a bit every budget time. I think in my six years there was one budget we had which there were no tweaks to super and that was pretty outstanding. But most budgets actually change a bit around super and we've just had a big raft of three or four different um, legislative changes that have changed super a bit. We've always said it's got to be more efficient. If we're taking mandatory 9.5% of, of, of people's salaries and putting it into you know, essentially a private saving system, we've got to make that the system as efficient as possible. And it hasn't been efficient. There's been lots of leakage and wastage. Um, and what we say is to, to, to every government of every hue, um, if, if it's going to be successful, if people are going to rely on it and, and have confidence in it, it's got to be efficient. And uh, that means sometimes vested interests have to stand aside for the good of the consumer. So there's a few issues that really go straight to that, which were picked up in the review. Um, what are the ones that you were sort of um, that you you think are the most important in terms of enhancing efficiency? Mm. There's a lot. Um, I, I guess the five the five highlights from the review, and this doesn't mean that we necessarily agree with them all, but um, there's I guess if we could rattle them off, there's. Increases in super result in lower wages growth. That was one thing that was found. Um, retirees must learn to spend their capital, not just live on their income. That's a profound finding. <laughs> That's really going to change things culturally if we go down that path. Uh, another finding was that people with large super balances receive too much in tax concessions, and we can unpack that a bit as well. Yeah. Another one is the family home. The great sacred cow of Australia, of course, is the family home, and it's remained largely untouched. Although everybody knows if you go into aged care, if you put a parent in aged care, most people, to pay that refundable deposit, have to sell the family home. So in some aspects, it is counted as an asset, but it's by and large for age pension, etc., it isn't. Um, and then the other finding is the case to means test the family home. Anything to touch at the family home, party politics and politicians just back away in terror because this is something that you know nobody's really uh, wanted to do for a long time. But I guess they're sort of five big things that anybody reading it could say, yeah, these are the things that were found and. Callaghan doesn't give any recommendations, but it does come up with some really interesting findings, um, and they're probably the main ones that uh, that will change things if governments go down a policy path. And there's a very big if on that question. Yeah, it's really, I think um, 
this whole question around, well, I think to start as your point about putting evidence on the table, uh, this, I think it's been fascinating that there is um, perhaps not been quite the focus on what it costs uh, taxpayers in terms of the, you know, in, to provide those superannuation tax breaks um, and how those are playing out. Uh, and then to, so, so very clearly sort of saying, yes, spending on the age pension uh, will fall, mm-hmm. uh, but um, but actually there is still a cost associated to this which comes straight from the budget as well. Uh, yeah, and this, of course, has played in, I think, that combination with the point that you made about, well, lower wages growth as a result of increasing um, the superannuation guarantee uh, you know, I think it's it's a pretty interesting cocktail of policy challenge uh, for, mm-hmm. for the government. Where, where do you come out in terms of um, lifting the super guarantee? Well, our policy, the FSC's policy, is that um, the government, any government, all government, should stick to the legislated agenda to raise to raise the superannuation guarantee from 9.5 percent all the way up to 12 percent by 2025, and that's legislated. Um, it's legislated to go up to 10% next uh, by the end of next uh, financial year, and then in, and then up to 12 over the next um, four years after that to 2025. So we say um, yes, um, the government does need to to stick to that. Um, but what the what the review has laid out, and I think this is really interesting, and it's it's caused us to think a bit about this. Getting to 12% is one way to get to adequate retirement incomes. That's that's one path if you don't change anything else. But what the Retirement Incomes Review has said, well, if you look at a whole lot of other levers, maybe you stick to 9.5. And what they're saying and what they said is more efficient use of savings in retirement can have a bigger impact on improving retirement income than increasing the SG. If the SG remained at 9.5% and retirement savings were used more efficiently, most people would achieve that um, optimum 65 to 75% replacement rate. So that means you can live on comfortably about 65 to 75% of the income you had pre-retirement. But the real kicker in that statement, keeping the SG at 9.5% is retirement savings are used more efficiently. Now, they make a lot of, they make a lot of um, uh, really interesting cases for this. So that would be using retirement savings as capital, not income. So at the moment, you go to a financial advisor and he says, look, you've got to build your corpus in your super up to a certain level. That will give you enough corpus to live off the income generated from that in your retirement. So everyone looks at getting that up as high as they can um, and to live off the, the income. But um, what Callahan has done is flipped that on its head and saying, well, no, you've got to draw down your corpus, live on that. Very interesting. <laughs> Not, it requires a big cultural change. I think um, it does. And, I, you know, I think, I think there's some really interesting um, evidence presented and some interesting findings. And I think this whole conversation around you know, are we setting people up to to be wealthier in you know retirement or to have a better quality of life in retirement than they do as, as through work? Um, and, and also this issue around um, you know what ha- the, the people the wealthier end you know actually leaving big 
big chunks of yes. wealth to the to the next generation. And and I think oh. that does you know raise questions around you know do we think this is the tax concessions are working in the way that we would mm. really want them to, not from an individual perspective, but from a societal perspective. And what's your thoughts on that? Look, you're absolutely right. Um, this is why it's good to have a holistic debate, not just a binary debate about should the SG go up by X amount. We've got to look at everything. And this is what the Retirement Incomes Review has done so well. We've always said at the FSC that the government... Okay needs to look at the best policy settings to enable a balance between pre- and post-retirement incomes for the bulk of Australians. So getting the balance right in your working life and in your retirement life. You shouldn't have a, a poor working life and a, you know, scrimping and saving so you, 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 you're wealthier in your post-retirement. You should, it should be sort of a balance. It should be about that equal. And we say that that middle income group of Australians, the most Australians, um, and we've done some numbers around this, about 80% of Australians earn up to or around $80,000. So your policy leverage for super and for retirement incomes should actually be looking at that cohort because the very wealthy can look after themselves through private assets, etc. cetera. Um, the, 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 the very the lowest income people are always going to have um, welfare and age pension safety nets. That's, that's the system that we enjoy in this country, thank heavens. But, you know, just that vast bulk of um, uh, middle Australians, 80% earning around that, that's who the policy needs to work for. And I think, you know, this debate, we're having people thinking about other levers to use, not just binary sort of um, superannuation guarantee numbers, I think is a very important thing for us to look at. And we at the FSC are looking at all of those things because um, I think if you started now with a blank sheet of paper for retirement incomes, you wouldn't start here. It's like the old Irish joke. If you, if you want to get to Dublin, I wouldn't start from here. And I think what we're doing now is sort of throwing down what the retirement incomes review is getting us yes. to look at other things. Now, they may not be palatable, and I think that's where the Australians are going to have a good debate. Do we settle for being um, or having less bequests to leave our children? Because an awful lot of people still want that to leave, you know, a lot of savings and a lot of bequests to their children. Um, and nobody wants a wealth tax. <laughs> you know, government's going to go near that. <laughs> um, <laughs> And there's, we, there's good reasons for that because, you know, history correct. shows that, you know, well, I mean, death taxes and things like that, I mean, that when you start getting there, it, the, the, you create a whole other industry around yeah. how, you, how you get around that, which we might like to avoid. Indeed. In fact, I think every state gave, Queensland was the first state to give it up and every state sort of gave it up after that, that sort of whole death tax thing. The the other interesting one, Melinda, for a lot of people to think about is that, that value in the family home. You know, in Australia, we, we have such highly valued homes for a whole lot of reasons, but it's a whole other argument, I guess. You know, do we look at, as Callaghan has suggested, not as Paul Keating colourfully put, eating your entire home, but maybe, you know, taking little nibbles around the edges. There are some better products now for reverse mortgages that are highly regulated, but they're not taken up. People, you know, still want to preserve their entire sort of corpus in their family home, and that's culturally a very Australian thing to do. 
So I think that's another area of great debate, whether or not you agree with it or not. Um, it's, it's, it's worth the debate. Because there's no doubt home ownership, as the Retirement Incomes Review found, is pivotal to a reasonable retirement. If you don't have your home and you retire, you end up in, you know, in, in a, often in a very bad situation if you're still paying rent. No, I think that's right. And I know the Productivity Commission has done um, a fair bit of work over the time on this as well. But, but I think, Sally, if I can join the dots a little bit here too, you know, when we started off um, the conversation, we were talking about what COVID had, um, you know, delivered in, in terms of just this huge economic shock and the fact that people, you know, were allowed to um, to make use of superannuation savings. I mean, it does raise this question around uh, the sort of lumpiness of asset holdings, if I could put it that way, where we, mm. you know, big chunks in superannuation, we've got big chunks in in the house in in, in home ownership, but. You know, then and, and look, the COVID crisis was a massive crisis, and and not the typical sort of shock that you might have precautionary savings set aside for. But it does seem to reveal that the sort of um, you know financial uh, savings that people have to to maybe tap into a little bit more readily during these types of times, you know, perhaps wasn't there, and that mm. we do have these these big chunks of assets that are locked up. It does sort of raise this question, doesn't it, around, you know, is there a, a different, uh, is, is there some, you know, new products, are there new products, are there new ways that we can get, get around this to create um, more buffers that aren't quite as, uh, as locked away as what we've got at the moment? Yeah, look, I think that's right. A lot of this probably stems from, you know, if we go back to, you know, getting our general population a little bit more financially literate, um, 70 to 80% of Australians, young Australians, when they start a new job, default into super. So they, they, they don't even make a choice about their super fund. They just let their employer do it, which is really unusual because most Australians choose a bank account or, you know, one their parents set up for them and they carry that bank account with them from job to job and they've never let their employer choose a bank account for them. But because we're so disengaged with such a big asset like super, you know, we just, we kind of let everybody else manage it for us. Um, so I think what's happened is that COVID and early release has made people focus and become much more engaged on this thing called super. I reckon there'd be a lot of young people who just looked at their funds for the first time and said, gee, I've got all this money in here. How did it get there and what can I do with it? So, um, you know, I think I think certainly getting people more engaged with super is a good thing because I think the more engaged you are with your assets, um, the better outcomes you'll have. Culturally, Australians are very engaged with property. You know, most Australians see the path to, you know, wealth as being accumulating a lot of property and some people start at very young ages doing this. That's, I think, a cultural thing that we have in our DNA. Um, so we have great understanding of, of, of property and housing, but very little about super. And I think one thing that people should understand about super is that it is a long-term asset. You can't just keep picking away at it. You can't keep accessing it and withdrawing money out of it because it's just not going to the compound interest and all the good work that all the fund managers do to, in, you know, to, to create that corpus and grow it at the time, 40 years down the track you retired. You shouldn't be allowed to keep picking at it. You should actually 
let it grow, but maybe have a bit more of an insight into how it grows and how you can add to it, etc. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think I think it's a good point. I think um, I, I think that maybe maybe this is just me personally, but you look at what's happened, and um, I think this this reliance on property and this reliance on super, and mm. perhaps a, a better outcome, if I'm being you know um, overly naive and optimistic, is that that there is this breadth of um, savings that that extends to you know the shorter term, you know the the more um, accessible liquid kind of <laughs> savings that people have and you've got the longer term um, and then you've got, you know, other other assets that provide other services for you, including, uh, you know, a home, quite frankly. And I guess the, I, I think this is the, the richness of the conversation where we started around, you know, what, what should we be doing with the superannuation guarantee? Mm, um, exactly. And, and, and looking at that in the context of the quality of life at work, the quality of life in retirement, but also what are the other needs and pressure points that you have um, through your working age, mm-hmm. and and does it make sense that that that's the only the, the main vehicle for saving, or should we be trying to think about other mm-hmm. ones to to encourage um, savings? And I do think it goes to your point around you know how we treat um, the home as an asset, um, and there's a whole bunch of tax stuff that sits within within that. How we treat super, superannuation, there's a whole bunch of you know, tax incentives and concessions that sit around that mm. um, and, and whether or not we've, we've got the balance right there in terms of the other aspects of private saving. Um, exactly, yeah. And private savings can be, you can, you, you, can, you can set up a managed fund with $500. You can actually, you don't need a lot of money to start something, you know, privately, even when you're young. And I think that's something that we should be saying to our kids. Uh, and young school leavers when they first get a job. Yes, absolutely, super is, is, is a big deal. Getting a property might be down the track, but you know you can actually put some money in a, in a, in a managed fund and it doesn't have to be a lot and that can grow. Um, the, the other thing I did want to mention here is that Callahan certainly um, dialed up the importance of getting great or adequate good financial advice. That's one thing that's a little bit smashed at the moment in Australia. Advisors have been absolutely smashed by a great deal of legislation, compliance, etc. So some have left the market. We're getting new advisors coming through universities, but getting quality advice absolutely is essential at every stage of your life, just to understand some of the complexities. And maybe to get, as you say, Melinda, that smoothing out, you know, not putting every egg in those two baskets of Home and super, but looking at looking at other ways we can we can have to smooth out our journey through life when we yeah, have the money. I think that's absolutely right. I was actually having a conversation with a financial planner uh, just yesterday, um, and we were talking about the importance too that a planner can bring in terms of discipline, so that you mm-hmm. because I think it's hard for us all to. I mean, I hear what you're saying about you know keeping an eye on your super, understanding what drives it, and all that sort of thing, but. But life is busy, and I think one of the things that you know um, financial advisors and planners can do is, is help you build the discipline around it, so mm-hmm. that it doesn't it doesn't get lost. Sally, can I tell you an anecdote that I to go to your savings point? I was listening to a podcast the other day, um, and this person was talking about having worked for Lucille Ball, um, the, <laughs> the comedian, and she when when she was doing the, the the I Love Lucy show when she had the standard um, actors that came in on the show and they were just the sort of you know the people you saw in the background she used to open up a bank account for them 
um, when wow. they started for her, and she'd put, this was years ago, and she'd put $50 in, and she told them every week you just have to put a little something in. You won't miss it, but you'll get to the point where you don't have to make any job decisions based on finances. <laughs> so great advice. Brilliant. <laughs> now, now, so I just had to throw that in. I was so impressed. Um, okay, so you were talking about how everyone's, uh, you know, savvy about property, and we all know mm. that you, you get the Saturday papers and the Sunday papers, and you look at property prices. So one of the things that the federal government plans to introduce um, is that the, your super tool, mm. great super products, um, obviously with an aim of kind of weeding out underperforming funds. Mm. Um, now. Do you think that's necessary and do you think that at some stage, Sunday morning, we're going to be sitting around <laughs> reading the paper and comparing the performance of our super funds? Uh, it could happen. <laughs> I'm not sure it's embedded in our DNA like uh, like property is because every conversation and every, you know, barbecue is about, you know, what the house went for down the road. Um, look, I think it will start with the next generation. Um, I think we are getting better, uh, better, you know, better financial literacy, better under, understanding of super in, in this current generation of young people just starting their jobs. Um, and I think they will look at tools like your super. They will look at fees. I know my own kids are young adults. They always ask me about fees, you know. I say, yes, fees are really important. But there are other important things too, like, um, like the investment returns. Um, if you're really into ESG, you might think about, you know, ESG investing. And I know a lot of young people, that's very important to them. So it's not just fees, but it is very, very important. And what we say about um, an enhanced tool like your super, um, that there's no, absolutely no place for funds who can't deliver good outcomes for their members because it's all about delivering great outcomes in a mandatory system. We can never lose sight of the fact that by law we require Australians to put all this money aside. So the system has got to work efficiently and properly for them. So we absolutely support any measure to make sure that super funds are performing well. And one day, maybe my grandchildren will talk about the tool around the, around the barbecue. And, so the, and, the, and this goes, I mean, there's the annual performance test for super funds as well, yeah. more transparency. I mean, yeah. is this... Um, so you, I, I'm hearing you say that you think that's a good thing. Um, well, yes, it is a good thing. Um, the, the, look, the four four big things that came through in the Your Future, Your Super, Your Future. There's so many different acronyms, so many different names now <laughs> for these various bills. But um, the, the the first big one that will change so much for so many people around fees is stapling people to one fund. This is what I talked about before. Not changing funds every time you change a job. Um, if you're disengaged and you just go from job to job, you're defaulting into a number of different super funds. So you're paying multiple fees, insurances on all these multiple funds. The Productivity Commission found that there were 10 million zombie accounts uh, in Australia. I walked into a newsroom when I was talking about this once and one journalist confessed to me that she had eight super accounts. Now, just imagine the value she'd get if she rolled them all into one. So that's, we absolutely support that uh, initiative. That's going to make a big difference for people. They'll have one fund. They'll take it with them from job to job, just like a bank account. And that makes absolute sense. Um, there are, uh, the, the Your Super tool, we think, will, will work. Um, we hope it will work. There's a lot of you know, thought going into the detail around that. 
The performance test for Superfunks, I think that's got a little bit more uh, difficult degree of difficulty. I think transparency on Superfund performance is a good thing, but it's really vital that we have the right metrics in place to track that fund performance, particularly for those default products. Um, we have to be sure we're measuring the right thing. No single metric can tell you everything you need to know, and people need a sort of a suite of metrics. So we are a little bit more um, hesitant around this particular annual performance test. We think the design has to be right, so we're urging policymakers, government and treasury to get the design right on this because there could be poor consequences and we don't want poor consequences for consumers. Yeah, I think the biggest thing from my perspective, look, I, I mean, I can declare my background as having been involved in funds management at different times and, and a few other bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I think the challenge here is is actually getting people to engage with it. So yes. I think it, it's um, simple language, um, not because people are simple, but because um, I think sometimes, to be honest, I think you know the the industry. Uh, doesn't do the best it could to demystify things. So I think making things easy to understand mm -hmm. and trying to find ways to get people to engage with it so they understand what, what a fund or a product is meant to be delivering, yes. why, why it's meant to be delivering that, and then people can understand whether that's what meets their needs for where they are, uh, and then actually being really honest about whether it's it's performed in the way it should. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think Absolutely. Those sorts of conversations are really critical, and I, I think there's still a way to go. You know, to, to your points earlier, Sally, to to get people to understand the significance of their super fund. It's not a black box, um, mm -hmm. and to get them to understand, you know, what drives performance, what detracts from what they end up with, which is where the fees piece comes in as yeah. well, mm -hmm. um, and and what their their own appetite is for that return relative to risk and when they're going to access their funds and all, all those kinds of things. And if we could somehow find a way, and, and maybe an annual performance test, we love ratings and rankings and, mm. you know, maybe that's the door that opens this conversation a little bit more. And the risk, the, the challenge, I think, is not to get it wrong at the in the beginning um, and then to make it more right over time, if that makes sense. That's exactly right, which is why we're saying, well, don't rush into the performances. We've got to get that right. We, we agree with it, but it, the, de the devil will be in the detail. We have to get it right. You're absolutely correct, because if you're measuring something every 12 months in a very long-term investment like super, you could get things wrong. Um, but um, the intent is right. We have to weed out the poorly performing funds. And because of our industrial relations system and the way that super funds are all linked to awards, there are still dozens of funds that are high fee, poorly performing, that are still in the system. And people don't, probably who haven't looked at their super don't even know that they're in those funds. So when we get the system right, um, those funds will be weeded out. So even if people still default, don't make a choice they will still be going into a a, a pretty good a pretty good fund with yeah. all the poorly performing funds out. Or or lift their game, you know, they can lift their game too. Yeah, absolutely. Um I think the, the, the family home is going to be something that's going to be unpacked a lot more when we get to the Aged Care Royal Commission and how we think about funding yes. aged care in the future, which is, you know, just Yes. That is the elephant in the room. But um anything else that you're looking for changes in the super system? Um, yeah, look, you know, probably, 
probably the last thing we'd say, um, and the one that is going to be very difficult and would only be tackled by, I guess, uh, a Liberal government, um, is decoupling the default super system from the industrial relations system, where I mentioned, um, you know, funds are tied to awards. We think by doing this, that would create a really competitive market for super members where the market could actually really work. Um, I, I think that's going to be quite difficult and, and certainly governments haven't got, this government hasn't got that on their to-do list at all. They're making a lot of incremental changes for efficiency. Um, they, they are fought over in a very partisan way. You've probably noticed in superannuation tends to be fought across party lines. Um, uh, that's because Compulsory super was started by the Labor movement and a Labor government, um, so they have a lot of um, interest in this system. So it does tend to fall around, you know, those party lines. And we're getting a group of backbenchers at the moment who are saying home first, super second. So they're putting emphasis on home ownership, which is, you know, a very, um, which is a very um, noble thing and, a, and, a, and something we all really should have. But they're using it in a political way. So. Look, taking the politics out of super is never going to happen. Um, it would be nice if it did, but it's a bit utopian. Um, the, the second thing we really, really want is the introduction of the Retirement Income Covenant. Now, this is where superannuation trustees of funds should be looking at what products they can offer to retirees. So instead of just handing a lump sum over to everybody to sail off into the sunset, they should be looking at products to offer people when they hit retirement. Um, so they can do more with that, um, with, with their savings and investments. So that, that is something we would really welcome the government to do. And finally, um, red tape, you know, just, just this massive sort of interlinking um, overlay of regulation and legislation complexity for financial services and products. Um, we don't help ourselves. You're right, Melinda, we, we, we use a lot of jargon, which does make it a black box, but... There is so much compliance overlay now that it really is having, it's, it's, it's raising the cost of both services and products and it's making things even more confusing for people. And, and some of these things sort of do the same thing. They're just called different names, uh, particularly around super. So it just does need a, a big broom in there. I don't know how that will happen. Um, we're giving them lots of ideas but we would very much like that to happen as well. I think I can, you know, if I could, Sally, join your first and your last points, which is, you know, I think that that demystification and, and that education piece is really critical if we're going to get to a point where we actually want genuine competition because competition without um, understanding choice um, may not lead to the best outcomes either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think your your middle point about products, you know, you know, I think what some people might say is um, I, I build up a, a, this huge um, pool of wealth and capital because I've got uncertainty about longevity risk and the yeah. cost of ill health, um, particularly in when I'm, you know, very old, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I think as you were alluding to, there are products which actually can very effectively and efficiently manage longevity risk for people. Um, and I think we're not seeing enough take-up um, and, and evolution of those products uh, in a way that could actually provide a lot more financial security for people 
particularly when they're sort of wondering, you know, am I going to live for another 10 years or 15 years or whatever? So, yeah. so I think there is um, more more to be done there. Sally, it's been a Absolutely. fascinating conversation. <laughs> Thanks so much. It's been great. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, uh, that was Sally Lone, Chief Executive of the Financial Services Council, uh, which, of course, represents... Um, all sorts of interests across the financial services sector. Thank you again, Sally. Thanks, Melinda.